Welcome to another episode of Dev Shop Stories. My name is Josh and I have Tanner here with me as well as Spencer. So thank you for coming on. Today we're going to share a story about Dev Shop tools, so common tools that we use. And the story begins with kind of the infancy of a developer. A lot of times when you're first starting off, you just kind of code and just hope for the best that you know, you make terrible assumptions that your software is never going to get corrupted. Your hard drive is never going to die. And this actually happened with me at one of my previous employments where we actually kept no version controlling system. And I was kind of taught by kind of one of the senior mentors, oh, you just actually just change the file name, you know, every now and then. So you'd add version three or V3 at the end. And then when you update it, you go V4. And also, he taught me, put the, your change notes at the very top of the file. And so they just actually grow and grow and grow at the very top. And it just, is, it just becomes a mess. And so finally, some of these small files that had maybe 20, 30 lines of code would actually have 100 lines of comments at the top, possibly. So it, it got pretty ridiculous. And so over time at Red Sky Engineering, we actually have developed the tools that we've used that kind of help better enforce. And so Spencer, have you had kind of any experiences like that? Yeah, I've been in a few other companies and teams where we've had lack of processes where, you know, there's no processes, there's no code reviews that are done. And it kind of works okay when you're a sole developer, but what, what starts to happen is as soon as you add a second person onto your team, changes start happening that you're not always aware of. Somebody may fundamentally re-architect the program and then Maybe a day or two later, you start to look at it and you're going, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know how to make changes or this could have been done better or this was unnecessary. And it's just it's really hard to be in a collaborative environment when when somebody's able to just make changes without any kind of feedback or peer reviews. Right. What about you, Tanner? Yeah, we've I mean, we've done it just internally grown from that. When we started with Red Sky before it was Red Sky, it was, you know, just a few of us working on private label VR stuff, one of our other companies. And uh, we didn't have any processes, any tooling. We were still trying to figure out what we wanted to do and what worked and what didn't work, what works on teams, what works as for a sole developer, what that kind of composition and dynamics going to look like. And we'd grown from not doing really anything. I mean, everybody used GitHub right out the gate because that's what everybody used at first. And that's morphed into using, you know, other tools we use still Git under the hood. But we're trying to use, we use GitLab for different purposes. We have different documentation tools. We have other pieces that we've developed and worked across to really help check all of the boxes in the other areas. But it all kind of started with, I think, the shift from GitHub to GitLab for us. Right. And, and actually, let me take a step back. And for those who are not, you know, in the thick of code all, all day long. So what my history went was going from kind of changing files by file name to actually using something called CVS, which is concurrent versioning system, which essentially was kind of a, a server that you would, when you make file changes, you would actually upload those changes and it would be saved there. And I actually remember one scenario where I wasn't checking in code often enough, and I actually went a full week without actually checking in any code. And what happened was I, I, I did some, I think I I went and I got so quick at like, you know, right click in Windows Explorer and delete all your files. Right. And then I would just, you could also do, you hold down shift delete when you actually went to delete. And that would not just put in the recycling bin, that would like permanently delete. And I actually grabbed the wrong folder one time 
deleted all those files and lost over a week's worth of work, you know, oh, just in man. one, one swipe. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awful. Um, but continue, continuing on. So it went CVS to SVN subversion to get is what we're kind of the, you know, the popular thing that, that is there. And there's been other versioning systems. I think Mercurial is one of them. Have you ever used that? I'm not using Mercurial. No, no, I there's, used there's it Bitbucket my... or not Bitbucket. There's what is it? Bitkeeper or something no, like that. No, it's- yeah. I used Mercurial at my last uh, place. Definitely more cumbersome than Git. Git is just, it's done very well. Right. You know, they, they checked a lot of the right boxes. Yeah. So what we're going to do for the rest of this episode is actually go through the actual tools that we use at Red Sky Engineering. And so, for example, if for our source code control, we use GitLab. And the reason why we use GitLab is it actually it had a lot of features out of the box. Now, I would say GitHub is actually caught up with a lot of the features that GitLab has. And so now it's just kind of, you know, historical, you know, we know how to use it. We've got a lot of our scripts written to use GitLab. But it would be pretty easy to switch between GitLab to GitHub if we needed to. So, for example, GitLab, we use continuous integration and continuous development, CI/CD. And Spencer's actually written a lot of our scripts that actually do that. So any comments there? Yeah, one of the things, uh, yeah, we like to use the CI within our code repositories. It helps. We can automate a lot of checking as, as people make changes in the project. We can make sure the project still builds. We have automated tests we can run that ensure some, some level of regression of things that we've written in the past still work so, so that we have the confidence going forward that things aren't just breaking without us knowing. Well, we set those up too to run on our own custom runners as well, right? We don't use the shared runners that GitLab provides. There is a limit on the resources there. So we set up, you specifically converted the runners from that old uh, Alienware, right? Yeah. Over to the to the newer <laughs> nice machine. Yeah. So we have a computer that's sitting at our office that we actually use on site. And so whenever somebody pushes some code in, it sends a signal to one of the computers in our office to say, hey, take this code, download it and check it all out. Right. Yep. Yep. Run the executions, run those regression tests, do all of those things that we tell it to do in those uh, those script files. So mm-hmm. we also in GitLab use their issue tracking for quite a while and we don't use it anymore. We've switched to you know, other software, and we'll get to that in a second. But so we use that to kind of record our bugs, our new features, our sprint planning. Yeah, we use the Kanban system for quite a while there, the inside of GitLab. I think that was like one of the primary drivers on why we switched that in the CICD for the most part. But yeah, we used the Kanban system for quite a while there. And then come to find out we needed some more tooling that GitLab didn't quite offer, hence the move on on that system. But we still use it for a lot of the internal pieces. We did use it for documentation for a while, if you remember that. Right. Yeah. In GitLab, they have, you know, milestones. So you can kind of say, hey, we're going to, you know, by this date, have these issues either solved or these features implemented. And they also had a, a wiki that where you can kind of do documentation in there. So it was, it was pretty good. But we've actually switched from using GitLab kind of wiki to store information about it to different documentation schemes. In previous employments, we use MediaWiki. So if you think about Wikipedia, everybody out there has used Wikipedia before. And MediaWiki is kind of the open source version of that. You can host it yourself and do that. Do you remember using that at the, the previous work, oh, Spencer? Yeah, I yeah. remember using that. Uh-huh. And so you get to, especially doing things like tables, you get to we use this weird syntax and try to... Yeah, it's like on Wikipedia. Every If you want to do anything, you have to know the syntax and... 
you kind of have to know the tool really well, which yeah. which you really don't want to. You want to be doing other things, right? And I think we even like created articles about, well, if you want to do a table, here's what the code looks like from a table yeah. inside the media <laughs> wiki. So you can just copy and paste that, right? Yeah. From a UI standpoint, it is rough yep. though. Mm-hmm. It is, it is old. Yeah. And but, the, but at the same time, people could just make changes to an article or its formatting and there was no, there's no standardization. There's, all, you know, there's five different ways maybe to make a table in, in MediaWiki. And then uh, we went from kind of MediaWiki to GitLab Wiki to now what we're doing is Confluence. Confluence is made by Atlassian and they've, they've got a number of other tools and we'll talk about some of them. But Confluence is like... Google Docs on steroids. It's it's really easy to edit it, to add headers, to add tables, to just insert, but it keeps everything organized in a nice cohesive way. You can add new articles, you can do links, you can do images just by adding them there. And then it's, you know, Spencer's favorite thing about it is searchability, right? Oh yeah, they have a good search tool. And especially when somebody else has already written an article and you're not, you're trying to keyword search something, right? And then, yeah, it lets you leverage tagging systems and stuff like that quite a bit. And a lot of organization on top of it. And then, yeah, the benefit is that you can find things actually with the different spaces and restrict people down. There's a good permission set in there too. That's kind of baked in. Yeah. I mean, a lot of companies I know personally, they just use Google drive and they just have a number of Google docs and spreadsheets all throughout, you know, all these different folders and everything. And, and it just becomes kind of difficult. And it's what I find so funny is that Google is a search engine company, but they make one of the worst search ever for Google Drive. You know? Yeah, Google Drive is a pain in the butt. Or or even if you have a file share with folders, with documents, with like Word documents and Excel sheets, those are hard to search through uh, when you need to actually search the content of what's Yeah, you don't get any them. content yeah. searching really unless you explicitly search for that file. Right. Or inside that file. And so Confluence can be hosted, you can self-host it so you can run your own server. And that's what we did for a number of years. And But then you have to worry about uptime. Uh, I've had it where it's crashed before and I had to go in and do repairing of files and just all that headache to now their big push is the cloud. And what really got me hooked is you can do 10 people for free in, in one space. And so so we had users one through nine with people's real names. And then we had developer Johnson as yeah, the 10th yeah. user, you know, and everybody that was new after we added more people to the company was developer Johnson, right? For yep. for quite a while, you know. Yeah, it was a long time too. Well, and going back to that self-hosted option, I think Confluence, only that's only an option now, I think for enterprise companies. Yeah, yeah like they, they deprecated even, this, the one that we did before the self-host. Yeah, for, especially for smaller companies. They don't even want to support that anymore. They, they want to push everybody to a SaaS model, which can't blame them. And, it, and, it, and so we have yeah, obviously switched over to cloud. It was, it was seamless. We were able to import everything. And then we now, you know, pay for everybody. And we actually now have actually added it so that our requirements for a project are outlined inside of Confluence. And we give our customers one free login, right? Yeah, we we merged some of the resourcing that we've done inside of Confluence into our PM process and utilize that as kind of one of our PM tools now because we like the permission set. We like how the interaction is there. And then, like you said, we uh, part of the offering for one of the clients is, hey, we're going to have all of this completely documented, all of the acceptance criteria, all of the feature set inside of here. And we're going to provide a user for you to that space so you can see all of this detail and you know exactly what you're going to get on those projects. So, And if they want more than one user, we just charge them the difference, uh, seven bucks a month or whatever it is kind yep. of thing. Yeah, they can have whatever they want. Like we've added whole QA teams 
so they can go through and verify the acceptance criteria on tickets and such as that correlates over to the, you know, the ticketing system. And so that's documentation. Uh, to kind of recap, we use Confluence there for control, source code control. We use GitLab. But project management tools are kind of, you know, there's a lot of them out there. Long time ago, when, when I was doing a lot of software development, it didn't seem like there was many options that, that people use. You know, you could use Microsoft Project was kind of one of the popular ones that I know PMs would use. And I remember we would use Redmine at a previous company. You remember Redmine, Spencer? Yeah, I remember Redmine. Yeah. So, you know, create issues, create tickets, you can do stuff. It's open source. We actually use Redmine not only for developers, but they actually used it for manufacturing processes to, to actually see what's in the queue to be created, what was, you know, next up in the in the job work orders and stuff. But we've now gone from Redmine to GitLab, where we're using that to kind of manage, you know, what our sprints were, to finally now we've landed on Jira. And Jira is another software package by the people that made Confluence Atlassian. And the reason why we didn't stick with GitLab specifically was Jira is kind of the industry standard, one of the, like the top project management tools. And it gives you a lot of flexibility. And I know, Tanner, you've spent quite a bit of time with, with Jira. Your thoughts there? Yeah, I love it. It's pretty daunting at first to get into because it does everything you could imagine. There's so much there. But after you get the kind of your setup running, um, it actually works really well. So for us, you can set up projects a couple of different ways. You can set up a company project or a team project. And the real distinction there is how permissions work. And for us with uh, third-party clients, when they have stuff come in, we set them up as a team, right? Uh, so we can set that permission set. And we actually give the client access to that Jira instance, to that team project and restrict it down with a group and, you know, all of the permission sets there. But it's it's phenomenal. It allows us a full kind of agile methodology with the milestones and epics and sprints and all of that stuff that we can set up inside of the project. Um, and then we have a whole process that I know we've talked about before, where we have how the ticket lifecycle is, how that goes into the QA process. It really manages things in a very elegant way. And then we can directly tie that back to Confluence tickets and the acceptance criteria in there. So it's bi-directionally linked. It's really convenient. Yeah. Spencer, your thoughts on Jira? Uh, what I like about Jira too is uh, it reflects the process of what we actually do. So it's customizable in a way where you can make your flows actually match what you're, how things are really working. You know, like the, the process a ticket goes through, right? Of where it gets reported, when it, when's it going to be done, which sprints are going to be done in. Uh, so you could plan out the next one, two months of work if you wanted to go that far ahead. Yeah, and it, it's a very good tool for managing what's what's going on. So everybody from the developers to the project managers have a clear view of what's coming down. Yeah. Now, I will say one negative to it is their API is horrendous. Trying to pull data out. And that is... Well, uh, and, uh, well going back to the customability of it too, is if, you're, if you don't set up your flows just right, you could really make a mess of your projects too. So there's, you've got to know what you're doing in there. And that is one of the things that we actually do like about Jira is being able to extract data out of it. But we've just had to settle on doing CSV dumps to a kind of a, a text file. And then our project managers will take those dumps of, of data and drop it into a spreadsheet. And that's where it calculates developer efficiency, time on task, average time per ticket, all that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. We extract a lot of the information from, from the Jira tickets and tasks where we, we track what stage it's in, who's doing what, all the way through the QA process, how many times direct issues have come up. 
we can extract all of that data and then run a bunch of analytics across it. It's really nice. So to kind of recap, Jira again is a, a great tool. It's difficult to set up, but once you have it set up, it's it's flowing and, and it works well. Going on to design tools, the next one is how do you have a UI designer, you know, show to a developer what needs to be created? And we, our progression at Red Sky Engineering has gone through a number of different steps. One is there is no design. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just kind of code it. And we had some coders that were better at design and then others, right? Yeah, and so just, just make it look reasonable. Yep. Developer and design is a huge <laughs> negative. Don't do that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You should see some of my UIs. It, which is, let <laughs> me go on a side tangent here real quick. We used to do a developer test that they had to do before they'd come in. And we would give them this, this challenge of, hey, make a website that shows a list of users and a table and a add a user, delete user, change a user. And, but we gave them zero design to work off. We just said, yeah, just, you know, do what you want. <laughs> and the designs we got back were so horrendous. You know? Yeah. Some of them were okay. Yeah. Nothing was ever good. Yeah. They were okay. But some of them, man, oh, my eyes still burn from the colors. And and I remember, you know, Spencer working on uh, together at our previous company, you love to use just the primary colors, just like bright red, bright green, bright blue. Oh, especially if I was uh, just frameworking out a UI for functionality and I clearly want to see, you know, margins and boundaries it's like, all right, this is going to be green. This, this one's going to be blue. Yeah, that's very clear. I kind of want to make it ugly so that because I didn't have a design, I'm like, well, I need something and, uh, you know, nobody's going to ever like give a thumbs up on this. Right. Make it so ugly that you have to change it. Yeah. Hopefully they change it. L- at least that was my philosophy. So once we started contracting designers, we went through a number of different tools. So we first started with Sketch, which was all right. It's a, a Mac application that only runs on Mac, can't run on Windows or any other OS. They would design it in there and then they'd push it to kind of their Sketch cloud. And that was kind of nice because then developers don't need to have a Mac. They don't need to have that software installed. They can click on the elements, see the margins and, and the paddings and, and everything like that. Then we we needed other people to kind of sometimes work on the designs. And so they, they actually transitioned from Sketch to Adobe XD because, you know, obviously Adobe, they're huge and they're going to make the best tools in the world. Well, guess what? This tool was terrible. Uh-oh. Yeah, it was good after it loaded. It just took 10 minutes to load. It was awful. Yep. And they, they were trying to do their Adobe XD cloud to kind of compete with Sketch. And it felt like that was kind of terrible because the designers, they had to individually click on certain elements and say export. And if they forgot about it and they had to remember to do it every time too, it was just, it, it just did not work. And so then we got word of Figma and Figma is a fully in the cloud design solution. So no desktop application, completely done in the cloud. They use, I think, like Wasm to actually generate like really fast code that, that runs on their surface, although we'll have future talks where we don't think Wasm is as fast <laughs> as, as it should be. It, it is a really nice tool. And so right away, developers can get in into it and they can navigate around. They can zoom in, zoom out and stuff. The only challenge that we had with Figma is that it didn't do versioning. And so we couldn't like lock down and say, hey, this is MVP. Now the designer is going to go on and work with the customer and kind of start working on, you know, the next version, you know. And it's crucial for us, particularly with Fixbit, to have a locked version, right? That way, this the client signed off on this. Anything else is out of scope. It's not in this project. It's not on this this work order. It was locked here. The nice thing, too, that we didn't mention on Figma that is the collaborative nature of it, right, is 
you do have multiple people working on the same document at the same time. Right. There's a lot of nice things to it. I kind of want to interject here a little bit, but uh, so what's the advantage these tools give developers or the or the whole process versus just getting a PNG from a graphics designer? Again, in our previous company, that's how we got our graphics design. It was just, you know, here's a PDF or here's some make, PNGs. Make it look and match and stuff. We've had, right. yeah. had clients who have done that same thing. Yeah. They just wanted a picture. What What, what is the advantage? Yeah, what are the, the advantages so of these tools? For me, it's the capability of seeing pixel accurate representations of what you need. And so for that, what I mean is you can actually go into these tools and you can click on a button and you can hold your, you have that button highlighted and selected and you move your mouse over to the left side or the right side and it'll say, well, you need a 16 pixel margin this exactly and you need that. Whereas what I found a lot with a, a PNG of here's what the design looks like is that developers try their best, but they're not they're not the greatest at seeing patterns and, and uh, consistency. And so they just, you know, they're like, oh, it looks close enough, you know? Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, you get the consistency out of the design where it's like, hey, for us, we standardize on like our apixel margins, right? Or, or variables of that, variants of that. So to, to have that standardization, because like you said, I mean, I can't see three pixels versus four pixels. Right. I mean, some people can, I can't, you know? Well, and going back to the images or you end up starting to use ruler tools and not like, and it, you know, it could be a difference of three or four and it depends on where you click on your ruler. Yeah. It's highly, highly subjective. Yeah. And so these tools make it nice. The other thing that they allow you to do is easily export. And so a designer might put in a number of different icons and for the developer to actually get those icons out, they might, you know, with a PNG, they'd either have to go back to the designers, Hey, send these as separate files and do that. With these tools like Figma and Sketch, you can actually click on them and say, you know, export the assets. And for that, you'll get a zip file that'll have your icons or whatever you need specifically from that. Yeah, but that didn't give us everything, right? We had mentioned it didn't give us versioning. So for us, our designer, Caitlin, actually found a tool that she really liked that helped kind of bridge the gap between design and development, uh, where there can be a lot of conversation, annotations on behavior, uh, things like that. It's called Zeppelin. We use actually a combination currently of Figma and Zeppelin to really bridge that gap. Figma is phenomenal for a de design tool. And then Zeppelin lets us stamp versions and have dialogue on interactions, behavior, expectations, and what the designer was thinking at the time on how this is supposed to function and the intention behind it. And I like to go right there in Zeppelin. And if I have a question on the behavior or or maybe something that doesn't make sense in the design, I could just comment right there and be like, our designer, Kaylin, she, she's answering within like five minutes. Yeah, it's, she's it's great. She's, she's phenomenal. Great. Yep. I mean, all these tools, they'll Figma and Zeppelin, they'll have tie-ins to Slack. So that is yeah. one of the things we, we didn't mention. We Our communication tools, we use Slack for our developers and designers to communicate, but you will add a you know question in Zeppelin and then Caitlin would respond. And all of a sudden you get a Slack message saying, you know, so-and-so responded. And so it's really fast, tight feedback loops there. The other thing with Zeppelin, I believe, is like you're saying, the annotations and the behaviors. With Figma, you can do comments. You can leave you know, little comments, but Caitlin can specifically tag certain things as, here's the behavior. When you click this button, I want to have a slide in animation and I want to have this new page come in or whatever, you know, and then annotations would just kind of give more context to the developer, see what, what needs to happen there. Yeah. And then for me, I like the thing. One of the nice things about Zeppelin is it gives me that whole flow. So it, it's just laid out a little differently. Now there are nice things about Figma where I can just kind of 
zoom in and out and go wherever I want. But Zeppelin constrains a little bit more to specific flows. So if I'm going through the account creation flow, right, I get that entire process, step-by-step process of what those pages look like. So to kind of recap design tools, we use Figma plus Zeppelin, but then we have a QA team. And so we have a lead QA person, quality assurance when I say QA, and then we have, you know, some other people that help out there and possibly automated tests and somebody that's writing those. But the tools that we use, we, we started off with just Google Sheets, right? Every single page, every single interaction, we wanted to test everything, right? Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's cumbersome. There's a ton of work to keep those sheets up to date. Anytime they had to do regression testing, I just, I remember every time with one of our old systems, they would just shake their head and it's like, oh man, okay, we got to go replicate this whole thing. And go through this hundred plus column or hundred plus rows of test cases. And it's just a big, heavy thing. Well, and then trying to keep that up to date with the new designs or as things actually change, it's nice to start to have disconnects between what are you testing and what do you actually want? Features and functionality as they change. There's no direct correlation unless you hyperlink some ticket somewhere. So it was, it was bad. Yeah. So we moved on from Google Sheets and we still use them for, I'd say, kind of some smaller projects. We might we might use that. But Jira has paid plugins that you can actually get. And X-Ray is one of the ones that our lead QA person landed on was X-Ray. And that allows you to kind of associate Jira tasks, tickets, features, user stories to kind of a specific test and, and have the actions that are going to have to take place to test this out the test results and all that's kind of contained nicely in Jira. Yep. Yep. And it represents the development tickets. Like that's how it interacts is just like one of the feature tickets or a task or a bug or whatever. And then it keeps a history of completion and successes and failures and you can annotate why. And it, it basically gives you what Google Sheets had come to give everybody just in a very nice, clean, elegant way and easy to access. And then it's directly already tied to the tickets. So X-Ray is kind of our QA tool. I would say in addition to X-Ray, the thing that really makes QA shine is having an awesome QA person. And we have somebody named Dan that is that is phenomenal at it. And and it's kind of like the developer's kind of nightmare of like, well, Dan's going to catch that and he's going to come over and, <laughs> and, and make you fix it. And oh, stuff. yeah. And so, yeah. He is, he is top shelf. I mean, Dan is phenomenal at uh, QA, both function and design. I think he takes some pride in in nailing people on some of those items. And, and I think he has some sense to him too, because uh, anytime you start dealing, when you have a project that's dealing with calendars and timekeeping, you always run in a class of bugs dealing with time zones and daylight savings. Just this last week, he was trying to log something from a month ago and it's like, oh, what do you know? It happened to go through daylight savings and it uh, created an interesting bug in the UI where it, you always assume 24 hours a day and it's like, well... Yeah, not always. Not well, always. And that's the thing that is really valuable from the, the personnel standpoint as being kind of in that mindset is having somebody who really understands and looks at it from the client's perspective and usability of it, not just function and yeah, does this do what it's supposed to do and look like it's supposed to? It's like, is this nice to use? So recap, QA tools, we're using X-Ray, sometimes Google Sheets have a really great QA tester uh, on your team as well. So now we're going to go into dev tools, and these are going to be highly subjective to the developer, right? Uh, the ones that you use, but we find certain commonalities and we kind of try to teach them to new employees that come in. So with an IDE, uh, integrated debugger environment, 
we there's kind of two popular ones in the web world. There's VS Code and there's the JetBrains line of IDEs. And so the one that we've landed on that we use quite a bit is PHP Storm, which is funny because we're not PHP developers at all. <laughs> I mean, we we can go in there and we can do PHP yeah, work. We have we a couple of like clients, it. but we don't we don't like it. It's not our cup of tea. But we use PHP Storm, and the reason why is, is JetBrains, the company that made all these IDs, they have WebStorm, PHP Storm, they've got PyCharm, they've got you know Android Studio, all these kind of things. I think they even have one called WebStorm too. That's yeah, they do. WebStorm. Yeah, yeah. yep. And uh, so what WebStorm? The reason why we didn't go with WebStorm, it, you know, it does your JavaScript and your Node JS, but it doesn't have the database tools in it. They, they they've made a separate product called DataGrip that that has kind of database tools. But PHP Storm integrated that all because a lot of PHP developers are doing front end and back end. And so they're doing database design work all the time. So we use PHP Storm because it has all those parts to it. Yeah, it's like it feels like a superset to WebStorm. Yeah. Yeah, because it still lets us do our JavaScript, TypeScript, uh, HTML. And, and it's, you know, it's 100 bucks a year and it's you know, just a payment that the company does for the the employees and stuff. So a lot of people, they, they actually navigate towards VS Code because it's 100% free, open source. But what you get with VS Code is you get to build your ID, essentially, is the way I look at it. You yeah, know? they've got plugins for everything. Yep. You get to find the plugins, you get to configure the plugins, you get to, you know, make sure they're up to date and, and do all that kind of stuff. And it just... it. it it doesn't feel like it's all inclusive and, you know, you don't have a company that's that's making money that puts it all together in a nice package. Yeah, it's for me, it's kind of funny, too. It's uh, developers are funny. We use it every single day, right? Like it is it is our tool. If, I, if I'm a framer, it's my hammer, right? It is what I do every day. But we're so cheap and don't want to pay a hundred dollars <laughs> a year for, a f- you know, what is a phenomenal tool. Or uh, if you go to Visual Studio and like they're charging more than hundred dollars a year for that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anything that's uh, your .NET stuff. And then, so again, when we get to database tools where you're kind of looking at data or changing the structure of a database, uh, popular tools are kind of like MySQL Workbench. And I think there's like Tiger uh, database tools. But again, since PHP Storm has a built in, that's what I typically use. You know, what, what are, the, I know Spencer, you've jumped around a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say I use probably PHP Storm for most of the database things. Sometimes there's some inefficiencies with this database. So I might use MySQL Workbench or it dev- if that one tool. I, pr- I could probably do 90% of my work just in that one ID. The thing I really like about uh, the PHP Storm database tool or data grip is that I can connect to a ton of different database types. So I can connect to my Mongo database. I don't have to go into, you know, Mongo shell. I can connect to MySQL or MariaDB. I can connect to Microsoft, uh, you know, MS SQL. I can, whatever I want. They have, I mean, what, probably 30 plus drivers to connect to the different databases. So I get everything that I need all in that one tool. And then there's other tools and other plugins that that you usually get with PHP Storm. One of them was Redis. Redis is a great kind of memory caching software technology. And we would just, there was a, there was no, initial built into PHP Storm Redis capability. And so we'd always buy the as like one or two dollars a year plug in Redis plug in and, and some developers are so cheap they don't want to want to want to pay that. You know, they'd rather use the command line and log into the Redis server and, and do stuff like I, that. I don't even think Redis makes a good GUI for their own they don't. utility. No, yeah, you, it's, it's command line. Yeah, which, it's just, get, which is fine. But again, the value of having it all in your IDE, I can just use shortcuts and I can get to whatever I want. 
you know, it just speeds up the, the development cycle quite a bit. However, with that said, PHP Storm just released their new version just a week ago. And it has built-in Redis support now into it. I guess you can't complain about the $2 anymore, right? The funny thing about the $2 is I think people are just didn't want to go through the effort of making like a... An account. Like a, well, like a purchase order, an account, just to buy this like $5 a year piece of software. Right. You know, like there's just an annoyance to that. The next big topic is operating system. You got people that are Windows... Mac, Linux, right? Uh, and then at our dev shop, we have a mixture there. We have a lot of people, I'd say 90, 95% of people are Windows users, a few Mac users. And we had one guy for a while that was just pure Gen Linux two. Gen 2, build it from scratch, for, spent his first two days building his operating <laughs> yes, system. Yes, he did. It was so long. <laughs> but we use Linux quite often in our servers, in our you know GitLab runners that we're talking about there. And it just becomes... It's almost necessary. If you're in the open source world, you need to have Linux and Linux knowledge, right? Well, yeah. And even our Windows developers are still developing within WSL, which is just a Linux subsystem for Windows. And and Mac is very similar to that Linux ecosystem too. It's a lot of the same commands. and Yeah. So we have actually taught classes. So we, we try to do continuing education with our developers. And so we want to make sure that they're very comfortable in Linux. And so we have video resources and tooling and teaching and, and stuff where we go over Linux command line. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's important to know. I mean, if you're going to do, like you had mentioned anything in open source and web development, I mean, you have to know the Linux command line. And so like Spencer had mentioned, there is WSL and now there's actually WSL two, which is the one I'd definitely recommend because it runs a true Linux kernel inside of it. But before that, we actually ran Git Bash, which was somebody that took Bash as one of the command line programs that runs there, and somebody has ported it to Windows. And so you'd actually bring up a terminal in Windows, but you're always still on the Windows file system. You couldn't use, you know, every package that you wanted to use had to have been ported over to Windows. You weren't actually using native Linux software there. Yeah, there were some nuances with that that we kept coming across when we would try to, you know, like you said, have a new package that we wanted to use or just some of the runtime issues that we were coming across between the Windows OS and the Linux OS, specifically like case sensitivity and stuff like yep. that. Yep. WSL2 is definitely recommended at Red Sky Engineering. And then we kind of get into other tools and scripts that kind of run. So Prettier is one of the ones that we actually use quite often. And what that does is whenever you go to save or if you run a command line, it just takes the code formatting out of the equation of arguments essentially yeah. is, is the way I look at it. We basically set up and say, Hey, prettier is going to take your file and however you typed it, it's going to format it to the way, very opinionated way that prettier wants it. And we just said, accept it. And then developers aren't fighting over, do we, how we indent in or how, you know, it's just like, well, the formatter just does it for us. Yeah. Well, and we took it a step further and put that on a, a pre-commit as part of one of our continuous hooks for CICD, where it will run that formatter. Uh, before your code even gets committed. Right. So you don't even have to think about running it. So just, yep, it's out of sight, out of mind. It just is all the same. Now, here's the thing is that sometimes those hooks could be bypassed and somebody could still submit the code. <laughs> and so what we did was we actually put it as one of our GitLab CI CD checks that says run across the files that they just committed. 
Does it still pass? If not, actually put it as a failure. So you can't even merge that code into our, our dev branches. So and then you also have linters and linters are things that will basically inspect your code as you're typing in and, and kind of give you warnings or status about, hey, you're not following the proper procedures or you're not, you know, it's not necessarily the code formatting. It's kind of the code that you actually have in there, whether it follows the standard that you have there. After that, we have kind of TypeScript versus JavaScript. And this is kind of a funny one because, you know, obviously a lot of people learn JavaScript first. And so that becomes the, the language that they're really comfortable with. And especially if they didn't come from a strongly typed background, if they didn't do, you know, strong C or C++ or C Sharp, those types of languages as their first language that they learned on. They, they don't get the, the whole reason of like, why do you need to say something is a number or an int or a Boolean or a floating point number? And, and so they don't, they don't feel that, you know, kind of thing. They're like, why can't I just say var, you know, var name, you know, equals Josh. Yeah. And, and, and so when you start introducing TypeScript to them, they get, they feel like they're being handcuffed. You know, they feel like they're only typing on the keyboard with one hand, right? Yeah. Well, because I mean, JavaScript for all intended purposes is the wild west, right? You can do anything you want. And you can start making changes. And now do you still have code that it even has compatible interfaces with it? You know, is it, are your turn types compatible? Not everything's a string or a number. You can have a complex return object. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's funny. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday of like, uh, back in the day, we would have to, the only way with JavaScript to really see what is going on is to learn your debugger, right? So you had to put in a breakpoint to see what that object actually was. Because there's nothing that tells you what it is other than at runtime. So it was, it was crazy. I remember when we were first transitioning over to TypeScript, right? You had played with it and we're like, all right, we're going to do this. And I fought tooth and nail <laughs> yep. over that. I did not want to do TypeScript. Yep. Yeah. And, and so much so that McKay, my partner, came to you and said, hey, we need to quickly spin up this new project. And so you spun it up as JavaScript. And when I started looking at it, I'm like, wait, this is JavaScript. This is not TypeScript. <laughs> yeah, and I came over and pulled in. over and said, well, let's redo it again. And let me let me help you, you know, through the pains of TypeScript and stuff. And now you're a, a huge TypeScript. Oh, advocate. yeah, I love it. I, I, w I wish all of our stuff was TypeScript at this point. But yeah, it's that initial ramp up time. Of like, okay, how does this work? What is it? What are the nuances compared to JavaScript? And coming to that realization that, hey, it's not actually handcuffing you. It, it's really actually liberating and convenient. It saves you a tremendous amount of time, especially on a team. Yeah. And, it's, and as the project gets larger and you start making changes in a larger project, it's like, how is this actually going to propagate through the code? And with uh, typeless languages like, like JavaScript, Python, like you said, the only way to know what's going on is with a debugger. It's like, okay, what, what is this actual object? Because yeah, your parameter is just the parameter. It's arbitrary. It's right? arbitrary. It could change and you don't know it. Well, that's a good lead in because the next topic is debuggers. And so you can go from not using any debugger, which sadly, that's how a lot of developers have been taught. You know, they, they use uh, console logs, so they just kind of print out certain states or they just guess and check. But uh, us at Redsk Engineering, we strongly basically force you have to use a debugger. You have to become efficient with the dev tools that are in Chrome. You have to be good with PHP Storm debugging or VS Code debugging. It just has to be part of your nature. Oh, yeah. I, do you remember uh, we had a contract before and uh, we were cross-training one of their new developers that they were bringing on? and Who, who, who had been working for a while. Yeah, like six years yeah. in the industry. Um, and our first question to him was like, hey, well, like, let's set up your debugger. And he's like, wait, what? Hold on. You, you've developed for, you've coded for six years and don't know how to use a debugger? Like, no wonder you're slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it 
it goes wild because it's it's really a required tool. You can't just I don't think you can't not use a debugger. And uh, I think you even need to go a step further knowing how to remote remote debug things. It may be, you know, if you have a microcontroller, how to how do you debug that? You know, anytime I work on those projects, like, all right, how do I debug this thing? Yeah, that's before the first even, thing you want to solve. right? Before I even start having a bug. And then uh, but same thing on servers. It's OK. We've got this thing running in production. How do I debug that in that production environment? Not just on my local desktop. So I think that's learning how to work your debuggers and uh, is an incredibly valuable tool. And it's not just your IDE debugger, right? For web, you have the browsers that have a whole debugger built into them and all the de- all of the dev tools inside of there as well. So it's, it's a fair amount of information that you have to know. Yeah, I honestly wish that universities or boot camps the very first day they just show them how to use a debugger. Like we're <laughs> we're gonna take the time out, and before we even teach you how to code, we're gonna show you how to put a breakpoint in. What is a breakpoint? How to continue? How to step over? Step into? And then they start teaching them how to code using that debugger as as how they're learning. Absolutely. Right? Well, it'll it would help you understand a lot of those uh, those logical controls and you know things like that a lot more because you can actually do it. You know, you step through it and see what it's doing. They do a huge disservice in not teaching it. My uh, my first CS professor, he actually did teach with the debugger. Uh, first day in class, it's like, here's what this line of code does. We're going to go to the next one. And, you know, he didn't even call out that as a debugger, but it's just he, right away he was showing like, we could just start stepping through the code. That's that's powerful. Yeah. Okay. So now the the hot topic is AI, right? You hear about it everywhere with chat GPT. You hear it with, you know, other, you know, AI generated imagery. And I was, you know, skeptical quite a bit as far as AI that would actually help you write code and generate code. GitHub Copilot came out over a year ago, and I remember seeing videos about it, hearing talks about it, but I never tried it myself because I'm like, oh, you know, I think that's going to be kind of terrible and, and it's just whatever. I was pretty dismissive of it until I actually tried it out. And <laughs> once I tried it, I was blown away by, I mean, how much time it saves how much, you know, the repetitive keyboarding that you would do, it actually just figures it out so much so that I, I bought into it. You know, I, I taught, you know, I showed it to Tanner and to Spencer and, and we all now pay for it, you know, the 10 bucks a month and, and stuff. And it's just, it, it is amazing. Yeah. Now I, I will say it, it doesn't replace the developer, right? There, there are certain classifications of developers that I don't want to use it. They don't have enough experience to not become dependent on it, but it is. I am astonished at how incredible it is. It is amazing. Uh, and sometimes, it's, especially when it comes to trivial code or, you know, a lot, most I would say most of our code is just moving data around and you, you name your function a certain way and you already know how it's going to write it and Copilot just gives you a suggestion. You're like, yeah, that's what I was going to write. Absolutely. Particularly on like a lot of your CRUD or pass-through methods um, in a service layer or something like that. Whether it writes it or I do it, it's going to be the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. One area I really like it is in unit test cases because historically those kind of they're t- kind of terrible to write because it's like okay now I've got to write all these lines of code where I'm just checking things it's it's pretty mundane but uh, with Copilot it's just like it suggests a bunch of tests and you're like yeah that looks good that's that's great or it suggests things that maybe you didn't quite think of but or you would have been too lazy to write yeah that's that is true where I where it first shined on me was. Sometimes you create an array of the month names, January, February, March, April. And I just started typing, you know, let months equals. And I just started typing J-A-N. And then it just auto-completed the entire 
rest of the thing. So I didn't have to type out specifically January, February, March, April, you know, it just auto completed it. And it was amazing. Yeah. Well, and that's to the point of like the kind of the trivial mundane stuff. It's like, man, like it's going to be the same thing either way. Like just let it do it. I I will say when you start to actually write interesting code or code, that's a bit unique, then it starts to get a little infuriating because it starts suggesting things that are not in line with what what's actually going on or makes sense and you just got to turn it off it's yeah. like, it's like it, go away it, it can get annoying uh you hit escape and it it hides it but then you type the next letter and it shows it again <laughs> and stuff so i wish there was a little bit more control of say okay ignore it for the the rest of this line you can just turn it off yeah you can just turn the whole plugin off yeah but, you yeah. can but then i have to remember to turn it back on oh yeah yeah but yeah yeah, then, for then us, you start to feel naked when it stops suggesting things later. Yeah. Yeah. For us, it's a, it's been a, I think we all could agree that it has, is a good tool and should be part of the tool set for most developers beyond a certain yeah, skill mid, set. Mid range to senior kind of developers for sure. Okay. So to kind of summarize, let me just go over through these tools again. For source code control, we use GitLab. For documentation, we use Confluence. For PM tools, we use Jira. For design tools, we use Figma plus Zeppelin. For QA tools, we use X-Ray with Jira and sometimes Google Sheets. For dev tools, and this is up for debate, we got PHP Storm is the winner there. Uh, the database tools in PHP Storm, we use Windows for a lot of people. Some people use Mac and that's fine. We use WSL2, Prettier, Lint, TypeScript's a big one. Use your debuggers. And if you're above a certain level, use GitHub Copilot. So. Those are kind of all the tools. Thank you again for listening to our story. We'll be back next week with more stories, personal experiences, and advice on running a dev shop. Thanks, guys. Thank you.